0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and
0: Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. There is an elite group of economists
1: and uh, politicians, bankers, uh, philanthropists who meet up every year at Camp Kotak to uh, <laughs> to cast a rod. I don't know if that's even how you say it, but um, David Kotak joins us himself right now, chairman and chief investment officer at Cumberland Advisors. David, I feel like McKee has gone, Ritholtz has gone, Kathleen Hayes. I've never gotten an invite to Camp Kotak.
2: <laughs> might be a reason. Uh, Officially, and in the presence of anybody who's listening and care, you are invited this August, and we would love to have you.
1: Amazing. (laughs) A day day made. Uh, I could actually go home now, but I want to ask you a couple questions, David, first about the state of the U.S. economy, especially in light of today's jobs report. It looked great, but there's still millions of people without jobs. We talk about the high savings rate, but there's so many people who can't even afford to pay rent. Is this is this K shaped recovery a problem for the Fed, for example? Uh,
2: it, it appears so. Um, j Powell said so. Um, others in the Fed continue to say so, and it, we shouldn't be de- deceived by. The 6% or so official unemployment rate when you recompute it to reflect some technical differences is closer to, say, 10%. So you think about that and you say, gee, there were about 155 million, 152 million, something like that, non-farm payrolls before COVID started. And there's 15 million people out of that group that are not employed today, some of them have dropped out, some of them are in the unemployment rate, but the picture is recovery, which is robust, but it's coming off a very deep bottom. So I wouldn't get sanguine that everything's going back to normal and everything's wonderful. I don't think we're there yet, but the trend is good. David,
0: you know, we again the trend is good. There's also been some I guess the, the murmur starting to build here over the last couple of weeks about inflation and and maybe not the good kind of inflation. How are you thinking about kind of what we're seeing maybe in the commodities markets. We're seeing the treasuries 10-year uh, over 1.6% uh, even earlier this morning. How do you think about inflation?
2: Well, we we look at inflation expectations, they are building. There's various ways to estimate them, and they're all saying that the expectation is rising. My colleague, John Mousseau, talks about that all the time. The problem is expectations are one thing. Delivering a change in the price level of a strategic elevation is something else again. hard to see it. When you have a true unemployment rate, somewhere around 10% in the country, so maybe down the road it comes, but we're more mild or sanguine about higher inflation risk than some of the others.
1: I actually spoke yesterday with Scott Minard of Guggenheim. He's well, I mean, he's an outlier, right? He thinks the 10 year yield could go negative. But his point was that disinflationary um, forces are much stronger than what he sees as transient inflation. He says you always see a spike in uh, yields like this, but it's, um, you know, but it, but it doesn't stay. Do, do you look at it historically and come to the same conclusion
2: Pretty much so. I saw the uh, uh, I saw the interview with Scott, and 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 the, you know there are two camps now. There's the camp that says, "Gee, the Fed is printing all this money. We're having all this deficit spending. We're going to get a big inflation." Well, sometimes that happens, but there's a lot of history that says that doesn't happen. And I raise a different. Perspective. I say to get inflation, you need two things. You need rising labor income, which is robust. We don't have that yet. We're in a recovery, but it's not robust yet. And the second thing is you need private sector credit multipliers, and that's the monetary piece. We don't have that either. So if you create a lot of bank reserves and they sit there and they're sterilized and they Uh, Transfer payments coming from the federal government are not capital investments, but what they're doing is bridging gaps across a valley to keep people surviving. I don't see the inflation forces yet in place, and I I don't believe you'd trigger inflation by looking at a change in an oil price. The Federal Reserve can't drill for oil. It's in monetary and banking multipliers, and the multipliers aren't there yet, and it doesn't look like they're coming so quickly to us.
0: All right, David, if if inflation is not um, at least a near-term concern here, it seems like the bulls have uh, kind of the the runway here, given the backdrop they're seeing with the Fed and with potentially a reopening trade here. Where are you finding the best opportunities right now?
2: Well, In the stock market, we think you have to be in it. You have to be in it. We're we're looking at maybe uh, S&P 500 earnings at around a $200 level in the recovery and trending upward. In the bond market, you you know we favor the municipal bond sector. Uh, The tax-free bond yields and structure in the tax-free market are ignoring part of the value of the arbitrage in the U.S. tax code. I, for one, don't see how tax rates go down They may stay the same or they may go up, but there's a value in the tax-free sector. It has to be understood. It's a different kind of market than a corporate or treasury bond market. So we like that as well.
1: David, I I just want to uh, uh, talk for a moment about the kind of fraud that you're seeing and if it's worrying you. Because it is in your latest note, you go through some state-by-state cases. Is it a concern, you think, or uh, should we be focused on um, the bigger picture?
2: No, I think there's a serious concern about flaws in the state by state data. And we see it in Florida now. It's going to cost the state of Florida millions to redo their unemployment system. We see it in Ohio. We see it in California. We see it in Arizona. We see bits and pieces everywhere. I published that piece And I had a response from a friend and said, we have 200 people in our company who were advised that their initial unemployment claims were processed and none of them applied for it. So (laughs) the fact is, there's a problem. And the problem has two implications. Number one, how do you rely on data when you know it's flawed and the flaws are changing so they're not consistent? And number two, it gives fuel to the people who don't want to help people, the the ones who need it to get across the valley. So it's a problem, needs a fix. Hey, David,
0: thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate chatting with you. David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors, uh, also the author, co-author of the book, Adventures in Muniland. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. We're just talking about tech stocks. Uh, Greg Jarrett was talking about tech stocks and Tesla. When you think about tech stocks, Matt, one of our faves is Dan Ives. He's a managing director, equity research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Really timely here. You've been um, you know, very bullish on your tech sector for a long time. You've been very right. Tech stocks uh, getting the short end of this rotation trade, if you will. Let's step back and, and I'd love for you to share your thoughts on kind of some of the big tech names, which have been so good for so long. How are you thinking about that, that sector now?
3: Sure, and it's great to be on. Hey, look, right now it's a white-knuckle period. With what you're seeing in the 10-year and the rotation trade, and, and you're seeing some of these crowded names hit the sell button. But to me, this is short-term. I believe tech stocks go up another 30% this year. And we are in the midst. We're in the middle of what I view as a multi-year bull rally for tech stocks. And that doesn't change with a 40 bps uh, move in the 10-year.
1: So what kind of valuations do you think are healthy then? Because some of them are really high. I mean, uh, I guess it's not fair to look at earnings for Tesla, but 1,000 times?
3: Look, I think right now, the, the conundrum, I almost say the quagmire for investors is how do you value $5 trillion of growth over the next decade? And that's really what the EV market is. Of course, right now, Tesla massively leading that market. And I think that's that's the question. Right now, you see in digestion period, and of course, valuation is going to be a nice fight here. But to me, these are stocks that are going to grow into their valuation, Tesla front and center, and re-rate higher. And I view this as just, it's a 10% pullback, but we've seen a lot of high growth names anywhere from 30, 40%. I mean, Paul, I view this as a golden buying opportunity in tech. I think we probably get this. You know, this could be our shot in terms of this year. Just, All just right. tech, Dan, oh, yeah.
1: or or EVs. I mean, Volkswagen is coming on strong. They're targeting a 50% EV share in China and the U.S. by 2030. They're targeting a 70% EV share in Europe, and they have. You know, seventy billion dollars to invest to make it happen.
3: Yeah, and it speaks to what GM's done in marry. I mean, they're diving into the deep end of the pool on EVs. But we're talking. But do you like? About, but do you like Volkswagen? Now, now, to me, I like GM in particular in terms of one that's going to have success. I think Volkswagen. The key with them is what they're doing on the modular build-out of EVs and their quantum ownership. I think that's key in terms of battery technology. And I think EV, we're talking about probably the most transformational opportunity that I've seen in 20-plus years of covering tech and disruptive technology.
0: All right. Dan, let's back away from the Tesla and EV a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about 5G. That's another big theme that uh, we hear coming out of technology companies, telecommunications companies. How should we be thinking about 5G and and what are the names that you like as a play on 5G?
3: Yeah, in 5G, we're still probably in the first inning of this all building. out. In China, they've been ahead. But when you look what's happened in the U.S., from a 5G perspective, this is really building out the infrastructure from a telecom services perspective over the next decade. And our best 5G play continues to be Apple because of the super cycle that's playing out in real time. And I think that's still going to be a $3 trillion mark cap this year. And then you look at some of the supply chain plays, like a Qualcomm as well as across semis, which is why we're bullish on semis as well as just the overall sector. With 5G as a tailwind. Apple clearly the biggest beneficiary there.
1: What do you think? I, I read a story today about China laying a cable that goes, um, I think from Pakistan, then around the horn of Africa and then up onto a beach in Marseille, it's going to deliver, um, in one second, the ability to play 90,000 Netflix movies. I mean, just super fast internet. Um, but I instantly thought, wow, I wonder where the back doors are built in. Like cybersecurity must be a huge issue.
3: Well, right now, cybersecurity continues to what well, we've seen post-SolarWinds attack, as well as across the board. This is probably the biggest pain point facing enterprise and governments today, especially as more and more move to the cloud. And that's why there's names like a Z Zscaler, a Palo Alto, a SailPoint, cybersecurity. That basket, that, that continues to probably be one of our most bullish areas of tech. And I think half those companies could get acquired in terms of consolidation. And look, take a step back. It's a fourth generation industrial revolution going on that's why what i look in terms of the trillion spent we toss it to us, it's, it's a pound the table moment unpack despite some of the white knuckles that we're seeing in many bears who've been in hibernation mode the last year now calling fire in a crowd theater so Dan, when you
0: talk to institutional investors, I don't you don't get to visit them anymore in this in this world we're in, But I know you do lots of phone calls and things like that. What do you? What's kind of the pushback? He
1: does Zoom, dude. He doesn't do yeah, phone
0: calls. Clients don't do Zoom. I'm guessing <laughs> it's hard enough to get them on the phone. But uh, Dan, what are they? What's the pushback you're getting from people that maybe have changed their minds on tech and and in fact have turned negative on tech?
3: I think the pushback is: are you are you catching a falling knife? Are these? Yep. Stocks that are going to continue to move down in terms of valuation, re-rating the other way, and and what gives you that confidence. And that's where I think what you're going to start to see in terms of the fundamentals, I think street numbers move up another 10 to 15% this year. But I think what we're going to see is over the next week, I believe we're going to have a massive bounce back in tech. And that's where you start to see some of the green lights and the technical start to improve. But right now, I think that's the biggest worry. No one wants to be the first to jump into the pool in terms of this market.
1: I saw an awesome story the other day. Bill Gates and uh, the actor Robert Downey Jr. are investing in a company called Turntide. It's still small. It's not publicly traded yet, but they make it a, a motor that is able to produce the same amount of power as another electric motor with 30% less electricity. It's not all about batteries, right? There are other improvements that can be made in EVs.
3: It's a green tidal wave that that, that I believe is going to happen in the U.S. biden driven, you know, especially with the blue Senate, and we're talking something that's really going to change the whole ecosystem, not just auto, but solar, and really across the whole, not just domestic, but globally And I think there's a massive impact here for the coming years. And That's why I just caution with investors, when you're playing EV and you're playing the basket, I think that this continues to probably be one of the most unique opportunities in the sector mm. that I've seen in decades.
1: I hope someone figures out a way for EVs to make a sweet noise. I like... <laughs> I like a good V8 exhaust note, but I don't know if fake is going to cut it. Anyway, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure talking to you. Dan Ives, Managing Director for Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. This is Bloomberg.
0: The jobs number came out today. The headlines were certainly impressive. 377,000 jobs added. Unemployment rate officially uh, ticking down yet again. Uh, let's get a sense of what's going on at street level, at the company level. We do that uh, with Tom Gimbel. He's a founder and CEO of LaSalle Network based in Chicago. LaSalle Network is one of the leading staffing and recruiting firms in the country. Tom, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, That the, the numbers we got today were certainly, certainly positive. What are you hearing and seeing from the clients that you
4: talk to on a daily basis? Positives is an understatement. I mean, we should be throwing parties in the street like it's Mardi Gras. Uh, <laughs> <I didn't anticipate. laughs> I'm with you. I'm, I'm as optimistic as it gets on this kind of stuff, but I didn't think it was going to be this big. And what I've been seeing is companies of all shapes and sizes, non-hospitality, non-restaurant, have been hiring. I didn't think we were going to get this bump until the weather really got good in uh, April or May job numbers. Um, so this is really a, a sign that the second and third quarter are really going to be fantastic. But companies are hiring in all all levels of positions across the board right now. There
1: was an awesome chart, Tom, this morning showing that investors are really betting on summer vacation, at least um, here in Europe, and we don't even have the vaccines um, that you guys have, uh, the S&P, the Stock 600 Travel and Leisure Index, just absolutely soaring. Um, do you think we're going to see business travel keep up with, um, you know, the, the trips we're all planning down to New Orleans, for example? I
4: <laughs> I think that'll be the last one, the last thing to come back, actually, because the, the economy is going to grow organically and innately in the second and third quarter because of, the vaccines uh, because of summer and hospitality coming back, that business travel won't need, businesses will think they don't need to do business travel for the second and third quarter. And what we'll start to see is eventually that's when the small, scrappy companies put people on airplanes because they know that if they get in front of people, they'll be able to differentiate. I think it'll be a real emergence of the entrepreneurial company because they will travel and big companies to keep earnings being positive will pull back on T&E because that's where they met a lot of their profit numbers in 2020.
0: So, uh, Tom, again, the headline numbers were very good. You dig down uh, a little bit deeper. There were some issues for concern. The African-American unemployment rate actually ticked up a little bit. What's the concern that as we come out of this pandemic and out of this uh, jobless issue, that it's going to be perhaps more unequal uh,
4: than many would like? Well, I think what we're really going to have it, well, on, on the racial issue, you know, as, as you saw during the election cycle last year, as, as the former administration went to tout how great things were uh, for minority hiring, because of the a lot of the lack of education and poverty areas, that that tends to be one of the laggards, which is a shame. I think a, an education forward-thinking administration should help that. Where I'm really concerned about uh, into the future is the white collar, blue collar service level divide. And what I mean by that is, what we've seen over the past year is that white collar jobs can be done remotely, but obviously blue collars jobs plus truck drivers plus cash register workers cannot. And eventually, whether you're black, brown, white, orange, or green, it doesn't matter. There's gonna be resentment of, why are you working from home when I'm going into the factory every day or driving the truck? And we're gonna have some real sociological issues, that go beyond gender and or race into deeper, uh, deeper issues than that. And that's going to be an interesting economic and job problem that we face.
1: Tom, what do you think about the minimum wage debate? It looks Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's done for now unless Kamala Harris kind of jumps in and does something last minute or the government's able to do something separately. But is it just too hard for people in middle America to imagine paying $15 an hour? Uh, how does it shake out?
4: Yeah, that's the problem, is that federal minimum wage is a floor. And and I think too many people look at it as what everybody's got to be making. And it really is a geographic uh, uh, issue. So should somebody in New York be getting 15 an hour? Maybe should somebody in Tulsa? Maybe not. And I think if they could compromise, somehow it's become... 775 or 15 and nothing in between and maybe it's time for a 10 or 11 dollar an hour minimum wage federally but most of the municipalities are drawing that line up anyways and i think you're looking at small retail businesses listen i, I work in downtown chicago we have a, a sundries slash convenience store in our lobby that was run by uh, an indian immigrant for 20 years he's out of business now and even if he could come back it's vacant he's been he's gone because nobody was coming into the office. Even if he could, he couldn't have afforded to keep it running by paying somebody $15 an hour to work with them. So we've got real problems to think that that's what's going to be the, the, the stagger to keep the economy going. It's not. You've got to get people working and help people, and, and paying them more isn't going to help the entrepreneur and the small business owner. It's going to hurt them. Hey, Tom, thanks
0: so much. We appreciate that. As always, Tom Gimbel, founder and CEO of LaSalle Network. We love talking to Tom on these jobs days. Uh, Tom is, you know, Matt, you know, we've been talking to Tom for a long time. He's been, you know pretty consistently bullish on the whole um, labor situation in this country. Uh, you know, really confident that jobs would come back as, uh, you know, the vaccines get into the marketplace.
1: I think it's pretty fascinating the point he made about travel, Paul. You know, big companies, not only are the bean counters saying, look, we made so much money cutting back travel. Let's keep it, let's keep it down. But you've yeah. got big HR offices also who are saying, nah, not yet. Let's, let's wait a couple more weeks, a couple more months, because they don't want their employees getting infected that's when the small businesses are going to be able to get a leg up
0: yeah i think that's a good uh, that's a good point so but uh light at the end of the tunnel as we like to say i am here
1: in berlin germany has said it's loosening the lockdown but you really can't do anything except for go to the barber which is no use to me and uh And go to the flower shop. It's weird, isn't it, that those are the two things they open? Hopefully, by the end of the month, they'll start opening my favorite stores and restaurants. In the U.S., many states are doing that. But is it a good idea? Let's bring in Lauren Sauer right now from Johns Hopkins University, where she is an associate professor of emergency medicine uh, Lauren, Connecticut now joining Texas and Mississippi in reopening the state, lifting restrictions. Is it too soon? I mean, Germany's like nowhere near that.
5: Yeah, I mean, I've, my personal opinion, and I think the opinion of many of my colleagues is that it is a bit too soon. It sort of feels like we've put in all this hard work. We've you know, done all, all of this staying home and wearing the masks and, and participating in all these restrictions that have been challenging for everyone. And we're watching... All of that hard work potentially crumble um, just because of a few uh, weeks of good numbers. You know, we have a little bit more of a ways to go. And I think we were all sort of hoping that we would see these states maintained for just a bit longer.
0: Lauren, give us a sense of how things are on the ground. Um, We we know the headline numbers generally are are trending very much in the right direction in terms of vaccinations and, and so on. But at the Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore, how are things going?
5: Yeah, the numbers are definitely looking better. Um, It's still, you know, everything has to be in context, right? So you still have to remember that while the numbers look good and they're going down, it's still from a very high place, right? So um, we had some of the highest numbers. Um, so far in the pandemic, just a couple months ago. And so that downward trend is great to see, um, but our hospitals are still stressed. We're still seeing patients with COVID. Um, we have seen a couple of reinfections and I, I think all eyes are on what happens over the next few weeks to a month when as vaccine, you know, sort of trickles through, through the state.
1: I mean, the U S is crushing it in terms of vaccines. You You guys are up to like, almost 2 million vaccines a day, right? And here in Germany, which is the largest economy in Europe, by the way. and I don't know what's going on over there. Very good at building cars and stuff. They've vaccinated (laughs) like 48 people in the past couple of weeks. Um, What has the U.S. done right in in that sense, Lauren?
5: I think one of the things that has been done right in, in distribution of vaccine is um, really a push to make decisions to get vaccine into people's arms. So the second we get hands-on vaccine, um, we push it through these systems. It has been challenging because the systems are disconnected. Um, they felt sluggish at first, but we leveraged a global or, or national-level infrastructure to really put vaccine into the hands of local vaccinators, and that's huge. So the next steps are improving access to those hard-to-reach communities, um, which many would argue, myself included, that that should have been done up front, but we have a lot more work to do um, to make sure that people who can't, you know, simply drive up to their hospital, wait in line, or wait on a computer to to get that appointment, um, and walk in and get it safely um, still have access so if they don't have technology access if they don't have someone who can transport them to get vaccine all of those things are where we really need to focus right now but you're right we're, we're doing we're putting a lot of vaccine into a lot of people now, right now here if,
1: in the if, US. It, I want to point out if Germany were nearly as efficient um, and smart about this as the u.s if germany was vaccinating at the same rate as you we'd be done we would have vaccinated every single man and woman over the age of what 15 i don't know if they're vaccinating kids anywhere but all of us would be finished if we had done in the
0: u.s way yeah it's uh it's just uh, hopefully you guys can get the momentum there matt but lauren you know one of the concerns that we all had and we still have obviously is the folks that just don't Get vaccinations. They don't trust vaccinations in general, and maybe in particular, they don't trust this COVID vaccination for a variety of, of, of reasons. Are you having those conversations with those people, and how are they going?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of work is being done right now to improve um, that vaccine conversation, particularly in vaccine hesitant groups. And a lot of that means working with community members, working with people from vaccine hesitant communities who. Um, really can tell the story to the vaccine distribution planners and the and the access personnel um, about why there is this hesitancy. And I, I think that hesitancy gets sort of convoluted when you additionally add access issues. And so those have to be addressed in tandem, um, making sure that communities that have high levels of hesitancy don't have high levels of inaccessibility um, so that as people come on board to getting vaccine and they, they make their decision, OK, I'm going to go get this vaccine, they should then be able to get the vaccine. And that is a huge piece of the puzzle, because if you have them for a moment to get vaccine, they may change their mind if it's just too hard.
1: By the way, I've been I've spent the, the last year collecting masks. I've got uh, Ducati masks, BMW masks. I've got Grateful Dead masks. Am I going to be able to keep using these or are we going to be done pretty soon?
5: I think we're going to see masks in in various degrees of use for quite some time to come. I mean, I think as we're seeing already in the U.S., max, that mask mandates are being um, taken away, but that doesn't mean you can't use them. And so, in circumstances where people may you may feel less safe as an individual, or you may be going to a place where you feel more vulnerable, um, we can you'll be able to use those masks for as long as you want. Um, but I do think there will be right. a reduction of mask usage as we get more people vaccinated.
0: Hey, Lauren, thank you so much. We always appreciate this uh, weekly check-in helping us uh, stay as smart as we can on this topic. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller.
0: I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.